0: American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows.
1: Trump romps in South Carolina. Plus, is it okay to like Chick-fil-A at The New York Times? We'll discuss all this and more. On this edition of the editors, I'm Rich Larry and I'm joined as always by the right honorable Charles C. W. Cook, Noah, Noah Rothman, and the Sage of Authenticity Woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National View Podcast Our sponsors this episode are the How the World Works podcast, the University of Austin, and Made in Cookware. More about all of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So before we get into it in earnest, let me tell everyone about our first sponsor, the How the World Works podcast. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their breakout How the World Works podcast hosted by author and political commentator Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives from flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe. Some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that inform their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, both of them are old friends and colleagues of National Review, for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts. Or visit CEI.org slash how the world works. That's C E slash how the world works. Please check it uh, So Jim Garrity, we had a South Carolina primary on Saturday. We're recording as is our want on Tuesday morning here. I, I you know I love politics. That's why I'm in, in this this line of work. I, I forgot. You know, it was sometime in the afternoon. I was like, wait a minute, there's a South Carolina primary today, and it was mostly forgettable. Trump won by 20 points. Margin, as has happened in the the prior contests, a a little narrower than the polling would have suggested, although Trump has been kind of hitting his his marks for what the the polling, you know, what his absolute number is supposed to be in the polling. But the margin has been smaller. And that was true. in South Carolina. So, you know, he's won unprecedentedly. He's won Iowa, he's won New Hampshire, he's won Nevada, he's won South Carolina. This has never happened in a competitive primary before. But, 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 you know, you get these signs of of softness and weakness. Exit polling among Nikki Haley supporters shows a lot of resistance to Trump. Plus, he's just having real trouble with college-educated voters, where she typically wins. She won in South Carolina. There's not enough of them. And uh, among moderates, what do you make of it?
2: So um, late Saturday night, I put up a corner post saying that the uh, South Carolina primary had been boring. And a couple of people objected to that. Let's just say, Compared to past primaries, whether you want to go back to 2012 with Romney and Gingrich and the rest, whether you want to go back to the, you know, bare knuckle brawl between McCain and Bush, by historical standards, this is a boring Republican Senate primary. And usually it's one of one of the deciding contests. Usually somebody wins Iowa, somebody wins New Hampshire, and then South Carolina is kind of the tiebreaker. Um, I, I'd stand by that assessment, uh, but I also would observe that if you, first of all, um, uh, our, our colleague, Dan McLaughlin, uh, was on a conference call with the Nikki Haley folks. Apparently, they didn't take his question. They should. Uh, and Wait, he came away with it saying, look, need, this... You should never not take Dan's question. Right? Like, you know, we'd, we'd, what? What is he going to sandbag you? You know, if, if if you can't handle a question from Dan McLaughlin, you're not ready for the presidency. But anyway, um, he he kind of came with a conclusion look... With Trump way ahead in delegates and likely to ke- come up more big wins on Super Tuesday, and really probably all the way through these primaries, he's going to be the nominee. The qu- you know, Nikki Haley is running a protest campaign. Now, I-, I wrote for that other publication in Washington. That's fine. You- you're entitled to do that in politics, and there's a strong message to be sent by Nikki Haley and her supporters. The non-Trump vote in Iowa was about 49%. In uh, New Hampshire, it was about 45%. And in South Carolina, it was 39.5%. Now, that's not a majority, but that's not nothing either. That's a fairly significant chunk of the Republican Party. Are some of these people crossovers from the Democrats? Yes. Are some of these people independents? Yes. But in the end, there's a bunch of people who are like, nope, this is not the direction we want to go in. We want something closer to traditional conservatism. Nikki Haley is the last option remaining. That's our choice. In a normal presidential primary, the front runner will be like, huh, how do I win over these people? How, how do I develop an alliance with these people? And in a normal Republican Party, you know, the front runner would be saying, "Well, I probably should give some serious consideration to this second place finisher and unify the party, unif- a unity ticket, and we'll roll into the general election." I think it's pretty obvious Donald Trump doesn't is not very extremely unlikely to do that. He says he doesn't want to do that. I, Haley's already worked for Trump. I think they know each other very well, and I think they realize this would probably not not work out very well. Trump might want to fire a might might want to hire a food taster. Um, you know, that, that this would be a, it would make Mike Pence look like the, the, the emo, on January 6th, look like the most easygoing relationship between the president and vice president. So I don't know exactly where Nikki Haley goes from here with this, I, but I hope she stays in. I think it's clear that this 30, like she's going to get anywhere from 30 to probably 45% in the rest of these contests as long as she's on the ballot. I think if she drops out, that drops, that drops and people just stay home. Um... But I think that like it, that's that's not that's a she is the president of the non-Trump Republicans. And I don't know exactly what you get with that, but it seems like it would be something worthwhile in politics. And, you know, if Trump loses in the general election to the decrepit 81 year old Joe Biden, I think she'll be able to say, hey, Republicans, remember all those polls that had me up 16? Boy, that would have been nice, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah I, I, I just don't I, I agree with your analysis. So I don't think that she gets anything from this, I think if Trump were struck by lightning tomorrow, that she would not be the nominee. You know, no, I the DeSantis I and Vivek would get back in. No Trump delegate would vote for for Nikki Haley. She wouldn't be able to unite the party, and I just doubt that. Uh, even if she's right about Trump, and she may be right even if Trump wins, you know she she is right about uh, many things she says about Trump. There's there's you know there's not going to be any. Uh, 51% of Republicans in 2028 saying, okay, you know, sorry, Nikki, we, we need to nominate you now because we've made such a mistake in 2024. But no, there's this debate about Trump, you know, from one point of view, you you look at him and you say, wow, this is an extremely strong, like the strongest candidate we've ever seen in a competitive primary with a non-incumbent. The other point of view, you look at him as a de facto incumbent and you're like, "Ah, you know, he, he's kind of weak. Which, which, uh, which way do you come down? <clears throat> well, it hasn't
3: been an especially competitive primary by virtue of the results, so I'm more inclined towards the latter, which is that if you listen to Republican voters, not the people who populate social media, who who's summon all the bombast of a North Korean newsreader when they're d- defending Donald Trump, like the normal average Republican voters, they like this field of candidates, or liked with the exception of Chris Christie on the one end, one end and Vivek Ramaswamy on the other, they still maintain affection for the field of candidates who came out in 2024, or 2023. And Nikki Haley, the last survey I saw in Economist YouGov testing her favorability rating among Republicans, found it was almost a majority still. About 49% viewed her favorably, somewhere in the low 30s unfavorably. So she's managed to thread a needle that other candidates did not, issuing really serious condemnations of Donald Trump's character, comportment, his liabilities electorally, a lot of third rails that other candidates wouldn't touch with the exception of Chris Christie, who did so in ways that alienated the voters he was seeking to appeal to. And that's an effective uh, vehicle, maybe not for her political futures, but for (laughs) somebody who would want to take up the banner. As these primaries have demonstrated Over the course of the last three, the big three, um, we've seen Donald Trump somewhat underperform his vote share, as you said, not just his margins, but his vote share Um, to the tune of like two or three points across all these contests. So not a big one, but it's concerning if you are looking at the general election head to heads, forget the the national general election, which doesn't exist, the, the national popular vote. Look at the state level. If you see all these state-level polls that show Donald Trump doing pretty well in places like Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, um, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Donald Trump's beating Joe Biden by various margins, two, three, four, five points even in some places. But look at where his vote share at is at, 46, 47, maybe 48 on a good day. Joe Biden's down there in the low 40s, which is why he's getting trounced. Now, I fully expect Donald Trump to pull in about 46, 47 percent wherever he wherever he's contesting, but in these content competitive states. But I don't expect Joe Biden to end up there. I don't expect Joe Biden will end up 41, 42 percent. And that should concern you if these if this polling, the polling that we have and now, you know, augmented with raw votes, which really does matter more than the polls. We see that Donald Trump has a ceiling and he doesn't even necessarily approach it, much less exceed it. And who makes up that ceiling? Well, it's high propensity voters. It's people who are suburban, exurban, high income, have a degree, maybe two. Those are the people you can rely on to come and turn out for your candidate. And the theory of the case that Donald Trump's people have been retailing for now almost eight years is that they've created this working class coalition, which, yeah, maybe they, they aren't competitive across... You know, all the elections that really matter midterm elections, off year elections, runoff elections, special elections, all those elections will sacrifice in favor of the presidency. The presidency is what matters here because we can get that with this coalition of voters who all turn out for this candidate who shakes up everything and is really unrepresentative of this, you know, uh, sclerotic status quo, establishmentarian, blah, 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 blah. But we have very little evidence to support that theory of the case. Save really one election, which doesn't come one data point does not make a trend. And Nikki Haley's candidacy represents, I think, a reaction to what Donald Trump's theory of the case is. He's saying that, listen, if you're not on board and his people, we talked about this Friday, Rich, when you weren't here, his people, the people who he's trying to um, uh, introduce into the RNC to take over the RNC and remake it in his own image, have no interest in this kind of, as you said, this kind of unity uh, push. In fact, they're really leaning heavily on Nikki Haley and others who won't uh, uh, acquiesce to the direction in which the party is evolving. And they're, they're just heaping scorn on them. And they wonder why Nikki Haley is still around. Well, it's a reaction to this effort to assimilate the party in Donald Trump's own image. It's not that she's doing this for, you know, for, for fun. It's just she, listen, she created this and accepted this strategy out of the blue. It is a response to environmental conditions. And they have everybody, but only to blame, only themselves to blame for creating those conditions. And I think it's very effective. She's, she's demonstrating that, yeah, if, if Donald
1: Trump loses, this is why he lost. And that could, that could pay dividends for her in the long run. So, Charlie, question related to the one I, I asked, Noah goes to to Trump's strength. So, again, you look at South Carolina, it's a very Trumpy state. Obviously, you know, Mickey Haley was a governor there, still extremely Trumpy state, and he's basically he's already the presumptive nominee has been for weeks and she still gets 40% of the vote so does that speak to trouble trump will have uniting the party in, in uh, such a way that he needs to defeat joe biden or you know you look at the general election polling and the the number of republicans who you know are with trump is comparable to the number of democrats who are with biden now, obviously you know they both have their weaknesses but you know is, is 90% or, or north for both of them I'm not sure that the
0: problem here is going to be unity, because I think that is an online concept. It's true that the Trump people keep shouting at everyone else that they have to get on board, and that Chris Lacevita is being mean to DeSantis, and that there are people in the comments section at National Review who say Nikki Haley is a communist. But this is not indicative whatsoever of the real world. People don't think like that. Most people don't know there's a primary on. If they do, they're not interested in it. The notion that there are factions within the Republican Party that they have to line themselves up with, I think, is alien. But I think Trump has a problem with suburban voters and a problem that could be fatal. So insofar as Nikki Haley's strong showing in South Carolina relative to the Trumpian juggernaut is indicative of some supposed fracture on the right, I think it doesn't matter. Insofar as it reflects a polarization in the electorate that may come to hurt Trump, I think it does matter. And this has been a deliberate ploy, as Noah says, by this movement on the right. For some reason, reasons that are still baffling to me, the movement on the right that is now ascendant looked at the landscape in 2014, at which point the Republican Party had done better in congressional and gubernatorial and state legislative elections than at any point since 1923, and decided that the party couldn't win, and that the sort of voters who had turned out reliably, to tick the GOP box since 1968 needed to go. And they have set about alienating as many of those people as possible, and they have paid a price for it. And I think they may well pay a price again in November. But it won't be for a lack of unity, because what upsets those voters about Donald Trump can't be fixed with Smiles and nice words. At this point, perhaps it could have been in 2016, but it can't be at this point. He's already done and shown and revealed what it is that they're upset about.
2: That's it, Charlie. Back to you, Rich. So, <laughs> <laughs> did you? We should have that with, as our closing note. You know, did you have any
1: problems with Charlie's uh, pauses on on Friday, Noah? Maybe it's maybe it's just me.
3: I did not. I, I guess I'm used to them. <laughs> at this point. you can kind of tell where the, the what's pensive and what's a period
1: <laughs> so jim garrity x question to you nikki haley will have a prime time speaking slot at the republican convention yes or no
2: no trump no. will not allow anything that could be seen as i still have memories of ted cruz saying vote your conscience and like the lights flickering at the Cleveland, at the convention in Cleveland out of that. So there's, there's no chance. This is going to be a stage managed scripted hooray for Trump MAGA fest.
1: Was it a a Texas delegation breakfast or lunch? Whatever it was the next day, it was extremely, extremely awkward for Ted. Noah primetime speaking slot. Yes or no? No. Same uh, rationale. Same
3: rationale. And yeah, it's, there's, (laughs) there's a profound insecurity on the MAGA-right. They cannot tolerate any divergence, much less dissent, from whatever the party orthodoxy is. And the party orthodoxy shifts moment to moment depending on Donald Trump's whim, desire. And if you're not on board with that, then you're not welcome. And uh, if Nikki Haley represents a dissent to that and she seems to have resigned herself to being a, a figure of dissent against that, she, her presence will not be tolerated. And I don't suspect she would she would want to be there anyway. Try. I think
0: it's up to Nikki Haley. If Nikki Haley wishes to position herself as an alternative to Trump after she has lost to Trump, then the answer is obviously no. But if Nikki Haley gets on board, says nice things about Donald Trump and resolves to help him win the election, of course Trump will have her because Trump likes nothing more than that. Just Mm -hmm. look at how he treats National Review. If National Review is rude to Trump, he says we're a failing magazine that should have been sued into oblivion and gone out of business a long time ago. If we say something nice about him or his policies or express any sort of defense of him, he writes handwritten notes. Mm -hmm. Not that I've got one because, as he knows, I hate him. But this is not the normal political calculation. If she flatters Trump, she'll be given a chance to flatter him in front of the country.
3: I want to say one thing about that, though, because he does treat institutions different from his rivals, his individual political rivals. They must submit to a gratuitous humiliation ritual in order to be welcomed into the fold. Part of the reason why they're lashing out at Ron DeSantis is he won't submit to that, and why they are and why they welcome Tim Scott is he will. I don't suspect Nikki Haley would submit to that.
1: So, does anyone think Nikki Haley won't endorse Trump? I don't. I don't know.
3: I would expect her to, because she's a politician. But she's done none of the things that you would think she would if she was. I mean, who's to say? She could turn around tomorrow and, and be a totally different person. That's totally within her, her capacity to do that. No, but I I think it would be weird will, at this
0: point because she's going to incorrectly convince herself after this. She has, that she has a future. She, yeah, that she might even be first up at the plate in 2028. And she's going to know that if she doesn't, then that's out of the question. Now, she's not actually going to be the Republican nominee in 2028, and what has happened this year is not going to translate four years hence, but she will think that there is a chance of it, and she's not going to want to blow that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it'll probably be a DeSantis-like endorsement, but if she wants to go you know, all in, it'll be a endorsement at a at a rally. I, I, I think she won't have a primetime slot, but for the, the reason... Charlie stated, I, I don't totally uh, discount it either. I mean, Trump is extremely transactional. If he thinks it would somehow benefit him, um, there, there's some potential. But she she's so hated now on the mega right. Now, obviously, the person, you know, the ar- our ultimate arbiter of that is Trump. You know, if he turns around, a lot of his supporters would, would turn around. But she, she would be, you know, you'd risk her getting booed and uh, it being an, an ugly scene. So I'm going to say... No. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor. This episode, the University of Austin or UATX, the newest university in America, is accepting applications now for fall 2024. UATX's founding 100 students will each receive a full tuition scholarship to attend class at the university's downtown campus in the heart of Austin, Texas. UATX is building a new institution grounded in the wisdom of the past and launched towards the knowledge and insight of the future. Students will study the liberal arts and sciences with distinguished faculty and work with Austin mentors who have started companies, pioneered discoveries, and built from the ground up. Visit UA, sorry, I always do that, visit uaustin.org, I always want to put in the extra A, that's uaustin.org to learn more and apply to join the University of Austin's founding freshman class. This is really an exciting venture, a big venture, it's not easy to start. A new university but there have been really talented and committed people working on this for years and now it's on the cusp of fruition so uh, do yourself a favor and try to get in on the ground floor uh, with that no we had this terrible story this young uh, student in uh, georgia murdered by an illegal immigrant came here about a a year ago. He should have been excluded like other illegal immigrants. There are other uh, instances where he should have been uh, detained and deported. It didn't happen. And he killed uh, this 22-year-old girl. A lot of uh, media outlets haven't included, apparently as uh, they considered an irrelevance, the fact that he is an illegal immigrant.
3: Well, I actually haven't seen that. I've seen Um, efforts to introduce that he was an illegal immigrant only to dispel the notion that that has anything to do with anything at all Uh, aggressively. So speaking of insecurity, events like these that reflect profoundly poorly on how Democrats and particularly this white house has managed immigration um, sort of just spark in the administration's defenders in mainstream media outlets uh, this reflexive desire to neutralize this issue in a way that only makes it worse. Just as one excerpt from a CNN piece I was reading on the Sabara, who's the name of the assailant, the alleged alleged murderer, uh, his status as an undocumented Venezuelan I- immigrant is now being touted by several state and national GOP leaders to support their calls for tighter border security. There's no evidence. I'm sorry. There's little evidence indicating a connection between immigration and crime. Well, you know, Except this, one of the guys at uh, or security over at University of Georgia where this woman was jogging when she was assaulted. So they you know, they hadn't seen a homicide in the University of Georgia in almost 30 years. This is a quote, isolated incident. That makes it worse insofar as the common denominator here is the outside element that had no legal right to be here. As you noted, uh, detained and released in New York City for alleged child endangerment, vi- driver's license violations, and a fake green card and was released before ICE could issue a detainer uh, leading to this incident. It's the whole episode is an indictment of the blue state model of democratic politics all the way up to the White House. And it leads the, it leads defenders to do one of two things and Charlie's going to take this baton but either to de- to insist all evidence to the contrary notwithstanding that this sort of thing just sh- doesn't happen. At the very least, it shouldn't happen. And if you notice it and make connections between the gentleman's immigration status and his act of murder, then you're the problem, not him, not the policies that led to him being here. And the second is to obfuscate entirely and to just suggest that the fate that befell Locke and Riley, the woman who was, who was killed, uh, she was a victim of, of societal prejudices against, for example, women. That really the problem here is that she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, in part because our society has so such little regard for female joggers. Uh, and, and that's presented as an enlightened way to look at events rather than being just entirely obfuscatory. Uh, it is, It's obvious what they're doing, and it makes them look really bad. But they don't seem to surround themselves with people who are willing to tell them that what you're doing here is is really disingenuous and dishonest and reflects poorly on you. They've cultivated this weird bubble that allows them to to uh, you know, promote these narratives that are so tenuous, but I guess get them a lot of uh, you know high fives and backpats in the newsroom. And you know, I guess that will have to suffice for validation.
1: Yeah. So Charlie, as previewed by Noah, I'll, I'll cue it up and let you take take a a whack at it. You know, there are a lot of uh Uh, People born in this country, obviously, a lot of citizens who are uh, criminals and murderers. So, why should we be obsessed with this guy's immigration status? I am
0: baffled by the line of argument that you just, I know, for the sake of this argument, outlined. I think it completely misses a point, which is that. There is a different, and must be, a different approach to how we fight crimes committed by American citizens than how we fight crimes committed by people over whom we have full control. The reason people are angry about this is that the federal government has a responsibility demanded by voters and enshrined into law to determine who comes in and who does not. And the city of New York, which had arrested this individual for child endangerment, has a legal system that should punish violent crimes and the choice, although not the obligation, to hand over those people it knows are here illegally to the authorities for deportation. And both institutions failed. Now, it may well be true that people who were born here or, like myself, became citizens commit more crime than illegal immigrants on aggregate. But that doesn't answer the question at hand, which is why was this person in Georgia in the first place? It's really difficult to deal with crime in a free country of this size when you're looking at people who are correctly and appropriately protected by the Bill of Rights. That is tough. It is tough by design. We don't want a panopticon. We don't want a surveillance state in which every one of the 330 million Americans who might do something wrong is constantly superintended. But we do want that, and we're supposed to have that for those who are coming in. I'm included in those people, by the way. It took me seven years to get from being a guy who wanted to come to America, about whom the federal government knew nothing, to a guy who had been through four background checks, including an in-depth FBI check, had been fingerprinted and photographed, had been subjected to an interview at the embassy, had provided all manner of personal information where I'd worked, where I'd lived, which associations I'd joined, so that I could be protected by the Bill of Rights in the way that native-born Americans are. We do not treat those two groups the same. And if you don't believe me, fly into the United States as a tourist. Now, I wrote this in my piece. My parents are coming over in a couple of weeks. And before they're allowed to do that, They have to have a valid ESTA, which is part of the visa waiver program. They have to declare on that whether or not they're a criminal and then give enough information so that the federal government can check whether they're telling the truth against various databases. They have to provide the airline with advanced passenger information, which will be put onto a manifest, which will be checked in its entirety against a whole bunch of databases in the UK and the US. And then when they get to the United States, they have to talk to a border patrol agent. If they commit a crime while they're here, or if they're arrested on suspicion of a crime, and there is sufficient evidence, they will be charged and deported. That's not weird. That's how countries with borders work. This guy from Venezuela was not allowed to come to America. There was no rationale for his coming. And if there was one, he didn't acknowledge it or ask for an invitation to come in on the basis of it. He walked in illegally. He broke the law, and he broke the law because the federal government has decided that it wants to make it easy for him to break the law. He then comes in, he goes up to New York City, he endangers the life of a child, he's arrested for it, at which point an American government knows that he is bad news and that he shouldn't be here, and it does nothing about either of them. It declines to prosecute him, and because New York has declared itself a sanctuary city, it declined to hand him over to the federal government. And he went down to Georgia, and he is now charged with murdering a young woman. Of course people are going to be angry about that. Of course they are. It is extremely frustrating when we have people in our sights and we let them go. It is analogous to how Americans increasingly feel about the progressive prosecutor movement. When they read stories in the newspaper that says, well, this guy killed someone... And he'd been arrested 17 times but never charged. There's not much you can do about a native-born American who one day ups and commits a crime. There's a lot you can do about the people who you are supposed to be tracking. And this guy was supposed to be tracked at multiple levels. So don't give me the statistical argument and say, well, you know, Americans are much more violent. Maybe. But the point is, is that we pay our taxes and we've entrusted our government with deciding who outside of the existing citizenry is permitted to join us here. And it's not doing it. And people are upset, quite rightly, about that in a way that they just can't be about people who happen to be born here.
1: So, Jim, I think really at the bottom of this is the left. And Biden, you know, several years ago was singing a totally different tune about the border and illegal immigration is now beholden to them. But the left really doesn't believe we have the moral right to exclude so-called asylum seekers. So th- this kind of this this distinction, you know, uh, um, uh, between your, your citizens who are already here and, and all the the checks and a normal government, as Charlie um, uh, explicated, a normal government would institute a, a against uh, immigrants or to just m- make sure they're okay before getting here. Just they don't they just don't really apply. They they just they think that that's that would be wrong.
2: Yeah uh, look, the entire system operates on the assumption that every asylum claim is at least potentially legit and therefore we dare not make someone wait in Mexico or wait anywhere else uh, before coming into this country that that basically as far as we're concerned, until it's proven that they don't actually legit came for asylum, we got to let them stay here. I want to turn our attention to a uh, recent video of New York City mayor uh, Eric Adams who was elected allegedly on a tough-on-crime policy, former cop, you know, the idea he was going to clean up the city. It's so only a town hall meeting, and the topic turns to sanctuary city laws. And Mayor Adams has now said, it's time to, mo-, quote, uh, we we need to modify the sanctuary city law that if you commit a felony or violent act, we should be able to turn you over to ICE and have you deported. Adam said. Adams said this, and the crowd applauded. I'm trying to think of a more common sense proposal. I'm trying to think of something that's less controversial, less ridiculous. Like, you're here, you're awaiting asylum, you're not a legal city. First of all, if you're here illegally, uh, and you you beat up a cop, you assault somebody, rape, any of that kind of stuff, that the U.S. government should be able to say, nope, that's it. First of all, this NYPD and the city government should say, hey, you're not in the country illegally, you're getting out of here, you're not our problem anymore, pal. And you turn them over to ICE, ICE sends sends them back to their country of origin. Try, come up with something. Like, if you polled the country on that, what level of support would it get? High 90%? You know, you think there's a lot of people like, no, no, we should allow violent offenders to stay in this country, you know, when they're here illegally. Um, Now, in New York City, I suspect that would still get, you know, famously liberal New York City probably get 80%. 90%, Ninety percent still be very popular, but on the New York City Council, maybe ten percent, maybe less. I don't know. It would not be nearly as popular in that. But the, this is wildly out of step. I'm glad Adams is saying this, but this is the, this should have been the policy in every sanctuary city. I don't subscribe to the idea that you know there's something so inherently unjust about our federal immigration laws that cities shouldn't cooperate with ICE. But you'd like to think, hey, you know what? This person's a rapist. This person's running on violently assaulting people. That those people we can afford to get out of our country, and we're not xenophobic. By the way, we let like a million people. People get get green cards every year. We're not a xenophobic country. We welcome more people than any other planet on our any other country on the planet. That's we also accept more uh, more illegal alien aliens than any other planet in the galaxy. But nonetheless, that's a different conversation. <laughs> different conversation for another time. <laughs> so, Noah, next question to you.
1: Biden and Trump are having these dueling visits to the border. Coincidentally, on Thursday, will Joe Biden succeed one way or the other? Whether it's by talking about how Republicans killed this bipartisan deal that would have helped him improve the border or through executive actions, which they're kind of talking about, haven't been very specific about what they're contemplating or through leaning on Mexico to reduce the numbers. One way or the other, Biden will take to some significant extent, the edge off his failure on the border prior to November.
3: Well, they have been specific about one of these executive orders um, that they floated to the profound consternation of the progressive left, which is to um, tighten asylum restrictions, the, um, the uh, standards that asylum seekers use to uh, establish their own level of threat at home, which was taken directly from the uh, Senate supplemental, the bipartisan negotiated uh, Senate supplemental agreement on uh, border policy which undermines the argument that Joe Biden is trying to make, which is that, you know, I couldn't do any of this stuff without congressional authorization. I don't understand how the Biden administration's approach is supposed to work. They were very, they retailed this with a lot of confidence that they could offload this political uh, liability onto Republicans having abandoned this negotiated compromise. And then once that opportunity actually materialized, the, all that confidence disappeared. It wasn't like they had thought about how this was supposed to work. Joe Biden presided over this crisis. It wasn't there before he got there. It it occurred under his watch. He's made it worse by ignoring it or or actually facilitating it. And they just sort of assumed that they have these profound rhetorical powers of prestidigitation that'll just incept in voters' minds a narrative that is contrary to their own reality. They do it all the time. They did it with Bidenomics and all these these efforts fail. And yet they're still possessed of this profound self-confidence in their ability to shape their own reality with rhetoric. I don't see how they get from point A to B but that does seem to be the only strategy available to them. So I'm sure they're going to try it. So no, I don't think Biden will be successful, but he will try to offload this onto the shoulders of Republicans. And Donald Trump's job is far easier. He's just going to look around and gesture to his surroundings and say, huh? and that's that's a winning argument. He doesn't have to do a lot of explaining. Democrats do. So I would uh, I would say Donald Trump is the upper hand in this
1: one. So Charlie, we got a no on the board.
2: Yeah, no, Jim. A, uh, a world weary no from Charlie. I, I just want to let's compare the length of Noah's answer and Charlie's answer uh, <laughs> to what was technically a yes or no question. Now, I, I have a couple counter questions, Rich. Um, when Biden goes to the board, is there an ice cream store near there? <laughs> uh, because that's where sure he does okay. all his international okay. and domestic policy announcements yeah, these you know, days. The, announced the reinstitution to remain in Mexico. Looking, looking uh, halfway. Yeah. Uh, um, I do not expect Biden to get much out of uh, this week's trip. He's got to put you know lipstick kind on of a pig and pretend that things are going great and the policies have been working. And if only these darn Republicans would allow him to get tougher on the border, which nobody believes that that's absurd. So, and you know, th- th- uh, I, I think the, the you know assessment, no up Trump just has to go to the border and say, "See, I told you." And it'll go great. And Biden could, you know, could suddenly be possessed by the spirit of Cicero or Winston Churchill or, or, or even the great Barack Obama, whatever great speaker you want to imagine. And Biden could give the greatest speech of all time, but it won't change the facts on the ground, which is what's really hurting him in his administration.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. The answer is no. I think he does get a little mileage from pointing to Republicans on the bipartisan deal, as we discussed a couple weeks ago. I think he'll he'll find, I assume, some way to reduce the numbers, whether it's through executive actions or leaning on Mexico, which they've already done some of that. But just the debacle is is too vast and too directly attributable to the, the policies he instituted, instituted upon taking office. With that, let's hear from our final sponsor this episode, Made in Cookware. If you're considering the pros and cons of different cookware brands, you should know that Made in has more of the pros, pros like Tom Coluccio. Nancy Silverton, Brooke Williamson, and many other professional chefs who all trust their cooking to made-in cookware. Fact is, made-in has a long-standing relationship with professional chefs. The company evolved from a 100-year-old kitchen supply business and works with multi-generational makers to craft each piece. They make exactly what demanding chefs are looking for, including a wide selection of curated products from carbon steel to stainless clad, plus plateware, glassware, and more. But perhaps the biggest pro is that Made In is sold online and delivered to your door, all for a fraction of the price of other top brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, invest in Made In Cookware. Once you try it, you'll be pro Made In, too. I'm pro Made In. I have a couple pans. They're fantastic. Every time I pick one up, it just feels just feels great in your hand, and it cooks evenly, and it's easy to clean. Right now, editors, listeners, get 10% off full-priced items. From Made In, for full details, visit MadeInCookware.com slash editors. That's M-A-D-E-I-N, Cookware.com slash editors. So, Charlie, we've had this cottage industry and journalism about the cancellation of the Tom Cotton op-ed a couple years ago in the New York Times and the people who had anything to do with it. Um, uh, Jim Bennett, the the op-ed editor who got canned shortly after running this op-ed, ran a Wrote a a long piece for The Economist magazine about this. Now we have Adam Rubenstein, who's the junior editor on this piece, writing a a piece for The Atlantic on his experiences. And it just opens with a a killer, unforgettable anecdote. So just like we do at National Review at, at The Times when they're... Um, bringing on new employees, they, they do these kind of warm-up getting-to-know-you exercises that n- involve you know picking a star, starburst out of a, a jar. And depending on the color, you have to answer a certain question. And poor Adam picked a pink starburst and had to answer the pink question, which was, what was his favorite sandwich? And he said, a spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. And Adam Rubenstein's career at the New York Times was basically downhill from there. <laughs>
0: it's funny it's also not it's funny because th- these people are incorrigibly ridiculous the HR person who says to him, no no we don't do that here what, like chicken sandwiches <laughs> the other staff being oriented with the clicky
1: finger thing so why, why did they do the clicky finger thing
0: because clapping is aggressive and startles people.
1: Really, cl- clapping is too militant, too yeah, threatening. That yeah. makes people feel. Yeah, it's people a, it's feel a species unsafe. of
3: twinkles, isn't
1: it? Setting yourself
0: on fire is brave. Clapping's too far. But it's not funny in that this is a premier American institution that considers itself to be the paper of record in the most important country in the world. It's been depressing for me to realize through personal experience that many of the institutions that have been whispered about for years are actually like this. I've seen some disbelief online in response to Adam's piece. I don't know why. I don't know... What about our cultural moment would make you think any of that is or ought to be untrue? It's clearly true. It's clearly reflective of a bizarre turn in American life that has now manifested itself in academia, in much of corporate America in the media, and beyond. You'll note, of course, that that particular moment was attended by HR, which seems to be the vector by which this odd way of thinking is spread. One thing I would note is that while I don't in any way fault Adam Rubenstein for this, he wrote this piece in The Atlantic, And The Atlantic was keen to promote it. But The Atlantic was guilty of broadly the same thing with our own Kevin Williamson a few years ago. The same editor is there. The same senior management team is there. The Atlantic probably feels that it can get one over on The Times by publishing this because they share an audience. But even the paper or well, magazine, I should say, in which this expose was written, is guilty of the same thing, exhibits many of the same pathologies. This is endemic in American life. The Tom Cotton incident was a public manifestation of what was clearly going on inside, and it hasn't changed. And it's not going to change until something forces it to change. And unfortunately, I don't know what that's going to be because the Times seems to be doing better than it's done for a long time. If Donald Trump is elected president, that will be even more true. And the younger people within our media institutions that are responsible for all of this are going to move up into management roles. And the older people who are to some extent resisting it, although not enough, will die off. So I do worry about this. I don't understand how anyone has got themselves into this, into this way of thinking, but I'm not quite sure what it will be that
1: extirpates it. Yeah, so Jim, one of the, the poisoned fruits of this way of, of thinking, the Times was dishonest. They they ran a correction that wasn't really correct. There there's nothing to be corrected in, in the op-ed, and they ran a news article about the publication of the, the op-ed that was uh, – uh, wrong in, in certain respects, certainly biased. Right, it was not a, an honest, objective account. Uh, it was biased against its, uh, the, the people who committed the thought crimes by publishing this at their, their own
2: newspaper. So, I'm in a bit of a unique situation, uh, as a lot of folks know. I write columns for the Washington Post, and you know, the, the, if conservatives loathe the New York Times, the opinion of the Washington Post isn't that you know isn't that much better. Maybe it's a little bit better, but not by a lot. Yeah, yeah. I treasured my uh, "Don't believe the
1: Washington Post" bumper sticker.
2: Loved yeah. it, yeah. Um, and, and so when I, you know, talked about joining on, I was like, first of all, honest to God, I use the ad- the actual words, "You cannot, Kevin Williams and me," uh, in that you can't bring me on, have a staff objection, and then say, "Oh, sorry, you know, if you're bringing me on, you're bringing me on." Um, and I just got to say that, you know, so far, knocking on wood, it's been terrific. They don't water down my stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So it's interesting to hear in Rubenstein's op-ed. this this statement that the leaders of the New York Times op-ed page believed that they would be bringing value to readers by publishing a variety of viewpoints. And that even if all of them saw themselves as either center left or left, it was good to present the other side and to say, "Uh huh, maybe this is thought provoking, or maybe this is something that um, maybe we haven't, you know, we didn't look at it this way or something like that. And I think that's a really good philosophy for a op-ed page of a major American newspaper. Uh, The folks at the Post have said this is their attitude. You want to challenge the reader. You don't want to keep saying the same thing over and over again. Because let's face it, if you're a New York Times reader, you've probably read an op-ed warning you that Donald Trump is a bad guy before. You you probably have encountered that one or two times before. Um, And op-ed pages get very boring and stale when you can open up and know exactly what they're going to say every single day. So it sounds like the leadership had the right idea. It sounds like the leadership, you know, except the problem was that a lot of people around them Weren't committed to that idea, and in fact, explicitly rejected that idea and compared it to letting serial killers running pro-murder op-eds. Well, first of all, I think if you see it that way, then you there's something wrong with the way you see the world. I don't think I'm right of center. I don't think the average liberal is akin to a serial killer. I don't, you know, and the so the first thing is you just morally reject the idea of giving any space, of giving any, you know, uh, space on that op-ed page to the other side. And I think if you see that, if you believe that, you should come out and say so. And you should say, we at the New York Times should never publish any right of center position. And go ahead and do it. And you want to turn it into Mother Jones or any of those other, go ahead and do it. But be honest about it. Don't pretend that, you know, all the news is fit to print. And we actually believe in a diversity of viewpoints here. So this, this whole thing exposed. the other thing was kind of, you know, it's interesting. And I'm glad Charlie mentioned the, the Kevin Williamson example. Something that was kind of, you know, stuck in my craw about that besides the obvious injustices. Let's say you're Jeffrey Goldberg. You've spent your whole career wanting to run a magazine, wanting to be in a position where you get to decide what features do we, what what uh, authors do we feature? What columnists do we have? What do we cover? You know, something where you get to say, hey, world, this is what I think is important. And then a bunch of whiny 20-somethings get a veto. They get to say, no, we don't like this writer. The correct answer is, no, no, we're going to give Kevin a try. We're going to see how it goes. Maybe maybe he'll be bad. We know Kevin. He's not going to be bad. He's always going to be exciting and provocative and thought-provoking and probably outrageous and probably, you know, like, here's the line. Kevin will jump over it every now and then. That's just the kind of guy that he is. That's what, you know, that's what editors are for. And you 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 go for it. And if you don't like it, there's the door. There's, the, there's nothing that says you have to stay here. I'm the guy who gets to run this magazine. And if it flops, it flops on me. Your your, your objections have been heard. I'm ignoring them. Go do your job or, or, you know, go go submit your papers and clean out your desk. And he didn't do that. Instead, Jeff Goldberg, well, okay. sounds like the staff doesn't like him. So I've got no choice but to let Kevin go, which was, you know, like what a surrender. What a, you know, like why do you want to be in that job then? If any, you know, snot-nosed punk who just got here can just go around and he gets to play general manager. So anyway. So no, you've,
1: you've literally written books that overlap a lot with this phenomenon, but, uh, you know, just re- reading this piece just made me think of just ha- what a miserable experience it must've been for, for Adam to re- have to read through the, the slack, endless you know, slack messages from, uh, thoughtless, illiberal bullies and people who should have known better who playing along the, with the crowd.
3: Yeah. It's one thing to be scapegoated. It's another to be scapegoated for something that isn't even an offense that's retroactively deemed an offense subjectively based on the relative decibel level of the mob. It's important that this is being published in the Atlantic, as Charlie said, um, because what this is is a reflection on a, an episode that's illustrative of a national moral panic to which we succumbed in 2020. Um, It was a culmination of the Trump years, which had incepted a lot of irrational anxiety in Donald Trump's opponents Uh, It had a lot to do with the pandemic, because allowing for racial protest gave all the right people license to go outside and socialize uh, in ways that they had previously been denied. And it was this moment where every institution in America was being screamed at, barked at, by people who insisted that they had to make some contribution to American racial rapprochement. Like they would just descend on Kraft mac and cheese and say, Kraft mac and cheese, you have to demonstrate your commitment to American racial harmony. And uh, if they would dare do that, it would be judged insufficient unto the day and be, they would be compelled to apologize for their for what they had contributed to this national di- discourse, because their contribution was neither actually, it was not desirable, it was solicited, but only to paint a target on their back. That is the milieu in which Tom Cotton wrote this op-ed, and Adam Rubinstein was made to suffer for it. Um, and we haven't gotten a full reckoning of what happened in that period, but we have sufficient remove from it now that the the authors of this moral panic... Uh, the Atlantic, the New York Times can look back on it with some detachment and remove and sort of adjudicate it as though with a li- with a lot of dispassion as though they weren't directly part of it. And um, that's probably a, a, a prelude to maybe a little bit more serious thought on this matter. But as the reaction that Adams piece has demonstrated, they're nowhere near close to that yet. Um, they're culpable. This is a confession, not an indictment. And we have yet to see a real serious reckoning among members of the journalistic establishment who perpetuated a profound injustice in the name of a very abstract ideal, a a desirable ideal and in its abstract. But in the application, its excesses were unjust and unfair. Adam was a victim of it. And there will be more future victims up and until this institution and the culture in which it it marinates come to terms with how they sacrificed rationality to passion
1: so charlie dreaded open-ended exit question briefly what do you think the state of the media will be if trump is elected again not as a business but as a as a product journalistic product
0: I think all of the criticisms that I've leveled over the last few years will immediately evaporate. Everyone will sober up and will be thrilled Mm -hmm, at the mm -hmm. quality. And it's going to get worse. Although perversely, it's going to be in less financial trouble because the outlets that are the most... the least reflective, perhaps the least sober will have millions of new subscribers as they did last time. And then when Trump goes, there'll be a reckoning because those subscriptions will lapse. The revenues will drop. The habits will make the products going forward worse than it ever was. And there'll be mass layoffs. And I don't, mean this in a directly conspiratorial sense, but there are a good number of American media outlets that should be praying for Donald Trump to win re-election, because it will be, for at least four years, the best thing that's ever happened to them.
2: Jim Um I'll be honest. Actually, I don't know if, if what Charlie describes is going to shake out, uh, because I think if Trump is reelected, a certain chunk of the audience that was clicking and buying subscriptions in 2017, saying "I got to know what this sob is up to," I think they will want to now. I think there will be Trump exhaustion. I don't know if there will be this sudden resurgence in interest from people who may have not renewed their subscriptions to the Times and other publications in 2021. Um, I, I think the tone, if Trump is reelected, will shift to one that was used to be contemptuous of Trump and contemptuous of. Uh, Trump voters from 2016 to 2021. I think it'll get into like just a, a much broader contemptuousness of America in general. Uh, that the country had let these people down by reelecting Trump, and you'll see a lot more like, does democracy work anymore? Does government work anymore? Should the people rule? Um, which will I think, be actually be much more dangerous. But uh, I don't know necessarily how well how widespread those those beliefs will take root.
1: No.
3: Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I have much more to add. I think uh, everybody's right that it will, I think it will get worse, but because there is, as Jim says, Trump exhaustion, it'll get worse um, with a with an aim, with a, an effort to, you know, uh, get the band back together and relight the fires of the resistance with ever increasing hyperbole. Uh, not necessarily hyperbole, actually. Some of it, some of it, perfectly justified, but nevertheless, um, not circumspect uh, in its, uh, condemnation of what the Trump movement means and what it says about America. Uh, so yeah, I expect it to get worse in the short term.
1: Yeah. I think it'll be a whole new level of insane worse than it was between, uh, 2016 and 2020. And I like Jim's point that a lot of it will be expressed in this broader disaffection with country. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you've been plying your teenagers with mocktails.
2: Yes, uh, long week last week. Friday night we go out Mexican taco place over in uh, Mosaic in Fairfax County, and they specialize. They, they have all kinds of great cocktails, uh, but they also have quite a few mocktails for the kids. And my teenagers are now both kind of enjoying them. Uh, by the way, as we were have as I was telling you before, we were ready to tape. Uh, I was like, yes, uh, the topic is going to be mocktails. I'm now getting ads in my Facebook feed for seed lip non-alcoholic spirits, which, by the way, was something I was looking at, you know, that was like the brand they were using there. So as usual, I think our computers are listening to us mm-hmm. and just be, just putting up social media ads based on that. Is, by the way, I, so computer, I tried my kids... Do you like this episode so far? I, it seems to be, you know. Uh, I try to think about what other ads I want to see. But anyway, the uh, you know it was a cucumber lime sort of thing. And as we were discussing before, yeah, they're a little more expensive, but... The kids really seem to enjoy them, and they seem like the sort of thing you're kind of surprised they had not invented a long time ago. Like, oh, we're gonna take some fruit juice, we're gonna put some seltzer, and we're gonna piece of fruit in it, and we're gonna sell it for like four fifty or five bucks. But it's the sort of thing. But it's like, oh, but the kids get to act like, oh, mommy and daddy have their fancy drinks, we get to have our fancy drinks. I, and I, I just was kinda, uh, I was ahead.
1: present when when Charlie Cook notoriously accidentally ordered a mocktail at a dive bar.
2: It ah. says- well, maybe Charlie was driving that night. The, didn't want the, mm-hmm. the golf cart swerving all across the... Uh, no, I think that road. was an accident. An accident. It was an accent accident.
0: It was yeah, also the first actually, time in my life I'd ever ordered a non-alcoholic cocktail. And I'm pleased yeah. to say that it was a mistake.
1: The, the aforementioned Kevin Williamson was there and told, told Charlie, Charlie just ordered a Shirley Temple. Charlie's <laughs> was like, "Why oh, did well, And sure enough, what comes up? Shirley Temple.
2: On behalf of teenagers, uh, designated drivers, people who don't like to drink, people who are going through dry January or whatever, you know, Lent, whatever your reason for not drinking, I think it's nice that we now have things that look like real drinks, taste pretty good, and can be enjoyable, and it's not like, oh, that guy over here is having a, you know, a seltzer and club soda or something instead.
1: Noah, you're in possession of some 25-inch skewers, I am.
3: You're they are 25 inch stainless steel skewers from Shoshlik Mangal Sturdy Shampoo in Ukraine. Uh, we have uh, some family friends who are, uh, his wife is Ukrainian, born in the Soviet Union, and they have these amazing skewers and I've admired them for so long and they, they gifted some to us and they're, they're really cool because there's, you know, they're really long. 25 inch doesn't sound like a lot, but it's very long for a skewer. And you know you put them on your grill, and you secure meat on. You, know, you feel positively medieval with these giant steel swords that you're just spearing chunks of meat in it. So it's a very it's a manly experience. You feel virile you know, right. making meat on on swords. Okay.
0: Well, I'm getting excited about baseball season, and I guess hopeful for the Yankees, which is probably a bad idea every year this happens football season ends takes a while to come down and then i think baseball is just not as exciting as football but then i start watching spring training this year it's been fun watching juan soto and pinstripes and i think ah, oh, of course the yankees are going to win 130 games which they won't but it's the good part of the season where nothing that has happened has yet disproved that optimism and in fact the Yankees have won all three of the spring training games thus far. So I'm assuming that's just going to continue and we'll get 162 game regular season. What do you think?
1: So I, uh, as I often do, I was wearing my Warren moon Jersey around town. It's any self-respecting old Houston Oilers fan would do. And this kid came up to me, turned out to be a nine year old kid, all excited. he's like, you're a Warren moon fan. (laughs) <laughs> Which is in itself is extraordinary. Yeah, so the, the usual the recognition I get is from, from other people my age. And he knew he knew how many career touchdown passes Warren Moon had thrown in the NFL and in the Canadian Football League. He was off by one, I think, on the Canadian uh, touchdowns. He was he was off by one. But if you're curious, it's total career 435 touchdowns from Warren Moon, and this this kid just restored my faith in the future of America. Truly an extraordinary thing. With that,
2: let's do our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? So I'm going to go with Charlie's Google has changed. And we had debated this being a topic for for today's show. Maybe we'll get to it later in the week. I I don't know the tech world. I know maybe a hundredth of what Charlie knows about the tech world. Um, So I kind of have to take his stuff for, for granted. But I also, it feels like It feels right, based on my very limited experience of dealing with Google. And it's mostly about Google Gemini, this AI that is spitting out crazy woke stuff all the time. But Charlie knows this stuff, and he recognizes that the Charlie we're dealing with today is not... The the Charlie we're dealing with today is the same good guy I always was. (laughs) The (laughs) Google we're dealing with today is not the same company that built the Google search engine and kind of, oh, this is a really neat, useful thing and all that stuff. And yes, it's extremely widely used, uh, docs, spreadsheets, all that kind of stuff, but it's not um it's been cruising on its past and it can do things like this generate you know create really lousy products that don't think as well because it's running on its accumulated capital and reputation of the past anyway charlie can explain this better than i can so go read it really thoughtful and i suspect not the last thing we'll have to say about this crazy gemini ai thing
3: no what's your pick Uh, my pick is going to be yours rich syndicated column uh on joe biden's insane war on packaging the administration decided to road test this during the super bowl the idea of quote shrinkflation um which is not a, a response to in their estimation a response to a manifestation of inflation but a primary driver of it w- in order to believe that you'd have to subordinate all rationality and your understanding of elementary economics uh, to this political imperative one thing you didn't mention that, I think, is actually really weird, is the way in which this this shines a light on inflation, like reminds voters of inflation. And it should be Joe Biden's job, number one, to say, you know, inflation's behind us. It's over. You can forget about it. Here he is, you know, hanging a spotlight on it. Why? It's just, it's utterly inexplicable. Thanks, Noah. Charlie. I also enjoy that piece, but I'm going to pick a different one. I'm going
0: to pick How to Defeat the Administrative State, which is a piece in the magazine written by Philip Hamburger, who argues that the administrative state is our primary governmental problem, explains why, and then tells us what we can do about it in the long run.
1: So my pick is also Charlie Peace, his piece about the Lake and Riley killing we we heard the core the nugget of the the argument during that segment and it just felt to me charlie having been an editor for a long time you get kind of a sense for these things that that seemed to me like a piece that didn't take long to write it seemed like one you kind of sat down uh irritated about something and pounded it out that's correct right or wrong there you go all right so that's it for us you've been listening to a natural podcast and rebroadcast retransmission recount this game without the express written permission of National New Magazine, Strictly Prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks to How the World Works, the University of Austin, and Maiden. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.